Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to Justice with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In the series of Justice, we will explore the experiences of mothers in the justice system, from women who enter prison pregnant and give birth inside, to those who are separated from their children for imprisonment and involvement from social services. Each episode, I'll be speaking to expert guests and exploring what needs to change. I'm here with Lily Lewis, Women's Involvement Advisor at One Small Thing, And in this first episode, we're going to discuss some of the main issues and challenges facing mothers in the justice system. We will also be hearing excerpts from a range of expert contributors to the Justice podcast on this topic. So Lily, can you tell us a little bit more about your role as Women's Involvement Advisor in the influencing team at One Small Thing? Yeah, and I think my role has grown as I've over time. So initially, when I came on board, my role was looking at um, a lot of the quality markers for the trauma-informed stuff that was going on in prisons and making sure that that was all reading um, as it should so that we could evidence what the prisons are doing with the trauma-informed training, I think, was the was the first thing. Right. And from then, I've, I've done a lot more work around looking at white papers and the government stuff and making sure that our voice from One Small Thing is heard answering to those and putting my points across from somebody with lived experience as to what it looked like for me and what I thought would work and wouldn't work. Also doing lots of blog writing and a lot of the blogs have actually surfaced from the back of answering white papers where we've realised there's something we've got more to say about um, a certain issue. Um, And now we are recording my blogs so that now you're able to listen to them which I think people sometimes find easier or living in such a fast-paced environment that nobody really has time to sit down and read so they can listen on the go. Well, exactly. If you're cleaning the house, doing the school run. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's sometimes better to have your voice telling the story because you can hear the um, emotion or the authenticity more when somebody's saying it and not reading it. Exactly. And if you're dyslexic <laughs> like me, then uh, reading is slightly tiresome. But sort of within that, there must have been challenges because. Obviously, you know, your history and backgrounds, you bring that to your work. What have the challenges been for you in doing this work? I think I've absolutely grown since I've took on this role. And one thing that I have noticed for me personally is that I'm not over a lot of stuff that I initially thought I was. So when this started, I initially came out of prison and I was, everything's great, I'm putting it behind me. I've realised over time that that wasn't necessarily true and that maybe I would put in it to the back of my mind. 
And I think as I've done a lot of this work, going over what happened, it's allowed me to have emotion around that and allow myself to be sad about what happened and sometimes a little angry about things that happened. And I was so focused on Miss Positivity that I wasn't allowing any of those other emotions to come in. I feel like I've grown as a person with the role. It can't be for everyone, right, I imagine? No, not at all. And I I do think most women that I know that have come out of prison want to forget about it, never want to talk about it. Um, When I first came out of prison, my thoughts were, I've spent all that time, I need to do something about it. Um, And... I've always said that that time can't have been spent for nothing. And I learned so much and I witnessed so much that for me to come out and be the voice of the women I left behind, that's like a privilege in itself. Yeah, well, it's a privilege for one small thing to have you working on our team as well. So Thank you. So what would you say the highlights are about sort of writing about and campaigning for systems change for mothers in the justice system? Because... You, as you say, you went to prison, you have children. So remaining on that positive note, what have been the highlights other than obviously it's helping you personally? Yeah, I think for me, the highlights are um, raising the awareness of children, especially when they're put in the care system, how they should have more access to uh, their mum who's in prison. Um, from my own personal experience, I thought my children didn't want to visit me in prison. But having spoken to my daughter, who's now 16, she was never asked. In fact, she was told it wouldn't be appropriate for them to attend. And for a long time, they were told I was ill. So um, I didn't know any of that. And that was, you know, quite upsetting for me. So I didn't see them for 22 months. And now that I'm one of the Plus is, is that I'm now able to speak to the children and hear what they're saying and what they were feeling. And I think that's why, for me, it's even more important that we are capturing the voices of children whose mums are in custody and, you know, letting them know that they do have a choice. And I think also trying to create more times for mums in custody to maybe come out of prison on the childcare rottles that and not always used, and us literally looking at everything we have got to, you know, enable them family ties to remain strong or become stronger. It's amazing to have you advocating on that issue. How we can make sure we hear the voices of children in all of this is something we have explored in previous podcast episodes. For example, we recently spoke to Sarah Beresford, Prison Reform Trust Associate, about the importance of asking children what they want. I think whatever children say that they want, we can at least say, do you know what, let's ask. I was at an event in Northern Ireland yesterday and one of the prisons there has exactly that, a small room where families can meet privately. Now, it's one room for a whole prison, but it's a start. And I think the more children are able to say, that's important to me, that's what I want, the more we can start addressing those. And I think we can be honest with children and say, this may not happen But let's ask. And it's really important that you've said that that's what you would like. You know, they're intelligent. They get it. They know it's a big, complicated system. But it's the being listened to that's the bit I think is really key. And I think the more we do encourage them to speak out and ask for things that should be deliverable, the more we might have a slightly different justice system. We know that anybody can end up 
going into prison. I was in prison with women who had been nurses and, uh, you know, different professions. And I just wondered if you ever thought about how you would be in prison or the things that you would do or how you would cope with that? Yeah, so I've thought about it a lot (laughs) over 23 years. So the first prison I ever went into was a women's prison in Kathmandu, where, yeah, I was 18 years old. And of course, when you go into any women's prison anywhere in the world, the children are a feature, aren't they? Um, That is the gender-specific nature of what we're doing. Um, And then I started working in style prison in Manchester after doing my degree in criminology and writing my dissertation on children being removed from their mothers when they were in mother and baby units or when the mother was serving time. And when I worked in style, after I finished my degree, I was particularly working with, obviously it's a female prison, so the children would come in and visit and the family members, and then they'd leave. And it was sort of, you know, it was upsetting. What was more upsetting was when they'd have the family days and the children were able to come in for a whole day and spend a whole day with their mother. They'd have more access to their mother. They could play games. They could do face paintings. And I used to get really involved in that. And it was amazing. And I'll never forget one day when it was over and I was escorting the children back to the gate through the prison grounds and everyone just started breaking down and the mothers just started howling And I was trying to get the children through this gate and they were looking back at their mothers and I was in my early 20s and I've got goosebumps now just talking about it. And it makes me genuinely want to cry because it was utterly horrific. And I wasn't a mother at the time. And so then growing up through my 20s and remaining sort of in this space, I remember there was a couple of times when um, I was either doing something around a policy on babies and children. And I remember one evening reading something about babies being removed from their mothers. And I just had my third child and she was lying in her Moses sort of basket by my foot. And I was sort of rocking her as you do (laughs) with your foot, uh, trying to keep her quiet as I was doing my work. And she was the age of a child that would be removed. And the narrative around this was, oh, well, they're young enough for them not to be affected. And it made me think, as it has done throughout my whole life, I've got three children now, and the idea of being separated from them, you know, I'm not a violent person. Um, I'm not depressed. I haven't had issues with drugs and all these things. If you separated me from my children and put me in prison, I would become violent. I'd probably turn to drugs and I would try and burn the place down. Like, And I'm not even being dramatic. You know, just the idea of it makes me really quite concerned, as you can probably hear in my voice. And weirdly, it wasn't so long ago, I actually had a dream about going into prison. And I remember saying to my children, don't worry, I've worked in women's prisons all my life. I know what they're like, so I'll be okay." And I can't remember much more to the dream. But so in answer to your question, (laughs) I and I think that's what fires me up so much about my work. Um, because I really can, whilst whilst I will never be able to say, I can imagine what it's like. I can't because it hasn't happened to me. But I feel so sort of, um, yeah, passionate about it because I, I feel like I 
have got some idea having been very close to the to the topic for so long I was laughing that you would be violent I can't imagine that at all. yeah I'm not always such a happy sunny disposition Lily let me tell you um what made you want to be a philanthropist around the criminal justice system and specifically women's prisons? Yeah, so I was um, about 11 or no, maybe I was 12 or 13 years old and my parents wanted to educate me about drugs and how dangerous they could be in order to try and keep me away from them during my teenage years. And instead of doing that themselves, um, they rather creatively uh, took me to Hope Street in Liverpool and took me to a drug rehabilitation clinic with my older sister, who was about 14 at the time. And we sat in a room with two um, people, a couple, a man and a woman, who were trying to come off their heroin. And I spent an hour chatting to them, I think it was, you know, at such a young age. And it was such a pivotal moment for me that, you know, we were able to discuss why they were taking the drugs, how they started taking the drugs. And then maybe terrible things happened in their lives. And, you know, they didn't end up there because they were living their best lives. And because all these amazing things were happening to them, they were turning to drugs to numb pain and to numb trauma. And so I think from a really young age, I just got this sort of understanding that people do things and take drugs, you know, in order to to sort of hide things. And then I've always been interested in crime, but I've been, it's less crime actually, it's more what drives people to do what they do. So I've always been interested in people, human behavior. I was always a real people watcher as a sort of child growing up. And then throwing into that my background, which is hugely privileged, and the sort of world that I grew up in, which was, you know, very unique, really, um, from a young age, I was 15 when I worked for an organisation called Save the Family, and my mum was patron of it. And so that's how I got to know it. I'd go along with her and she'd snip a ribbon and be doing sort of some fundraising for them. And that was an organisation in North Wales that kept mothers and children together as a last-ditched attempt before social services came along and removed the child. I was only 15 when I worked there for a very short amount of time as sort of work experience. And, you know, the kids would talk about their dads who were in prison. They'd talk about gangs and drugs and murder. And, you know, and it was really real, uh, the conversations that I was having, having with these other children. And so, so things just kept coming back to crime and drugs and prisons. And then after I went into my first prison, aged 18, which I've mentioned was in Kathmandu, I think that was it for me. I was just like, oh, my God, this is, this is mad. And how do I now get into the English prison system? I went into my first English prison when I was researching for my dissertation. So I went into the mother and baby unit in, in Eastwood Park. Um, so really, it was all those bits together. You know, I'm a female myself. Growing up, getting married, having children just sort of solidifies, in a way, the horror and the urgency of what needs to be done, especially coupled with the fact that we have a system where nonviolent women are being sent to prison, you know, in huge numbers. There are women who are eligible for early release who can't get out because they don't have safe accommodation. There are children, therefore, being removed from their mothers who don't need to be removed. Okay, so we all know there's cases of the Rosemary Wests of the world and the really extreme, you know, women who've done awful things that do need to go to prison. And of course, that is the only option, really. 
But, you know, I think you and I and everyone else who we work with, what drives us is the fact that we want to push a little bit of sense into the system, which is like, how about we don't send non-violent women to prison and we create a community justice system that actually works where they can get a community sentence where they can remain with their children? What made you think that you could fix this broken system? Because it's huge what you're doing and implementing. And I'm sure lots of people have thought about doing things like this. But what made you take the leap and do it? I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm completely deluded. But I think also, you know, so many people before me have paved the way. So many experts, so many people have done such incredible work. And that's what's kind of fascinated me. You know, governments have actually agreed on um, how we should tackle this problem. Um, You've got the Causton Report, you've got this, you've got that. There's an analysis paralysis around what we need to do. So for me, it was just like, okay, we don't need to rehearse what the problems are and we don't actually need to rehearse what the solutions are. What we need to do is make sure those solutions happen. So for me, that's the difficult bit. And I basically just got really impatient and I thought, my God, you know, we only live once. Life is short. I got to the age of, I think, you know, my mid-30s and my father had died in 2016. And I thought, I'm not going to go around like a one-legged duck anymore. I'm not going to sit in any more talking shops. I can't be part of any more reports that are written and shelved. I've done that. I've learned a lot. And now I need to use my money and my knowledge and my expertise to try and make sure that, you know, before I fall off my perch, hopefully aged 110, that we can say, finally, we did actually change something somewhere. So in your experience, Lily, what reform do you think is needed in the court process for mothers? I think definitely anybody that's in the magistrate court and it will be dealt with within the magistrate court should not go to prison. Because if it was anything more than the magistrates could deal with, it would be sent over to the Crown. So we know that the magistrates can only sentence up to two years. We know that we're looking at quite low level crime to come under that bracket. So I feel like the magistrates should maybe be educated more in other options that they may not know are are there. And that sentencing someone to prison should be the very, very last option. I think I've even read somewhere that they're talking about taking the um, power to remand away from magistrates. And I think that should be a definite anyway. I think that magistrates definitely should be there to secure a plan for the person in front of them. And specifically if it's women and specifically mothers, that there could be anything else put in place before we even think about prison. Yeah. I mean, I think sort of from what I hear talking to magistrates, one of the big problems, of course, that they have in their defence is a lot of them will say, Edwina, you show me the safe place that I can send this woman and I would happily send her there. There's an approved premises down the road full of men, um, male sex offenders. The child would not be able to go. Um, So I do, I suppose, have some sympathy with them when either they don't know what's out there because there's no mechanism, no central place where they can find out, or those places just don't exist. For me, though, a lot of these women have their own home, and by sentencing them, 
And if they're in custody for longer than 13 weeks, they lose the home and all their benefits. So if that woman, mother, already has a home, then we need to look at more community-based um, rehabilitation for her. And as much as I despise the tagging system, if that would be a better option, um, then we should look more at tagging in the community. Um, and I think now if it's a woman that is offending when using substances or drinking alcohol, then we, she should be allowed to have the tag that would detect that. But she should also be signposted to substance misuse centres and that could be part of her order. I think we need to look at the problem and look at dealing with the with the problem why she is there and not what to do with her now. Um, because it's, if you send a woman to custody on a short sentence, the likelihood she'll be out for a short time and be back in because we already know about this revolving door. And the majority of prisoners that are in prison as women are the ones that are always in and out. So it, that's definitely not working. I remember we spoke to Dr Shona Minson from Oxford University on the podcast about that issue. So women are more likely to offend again if they've been given a custodial sentence. And it's hardly any wonder because if a woman goes into prison, she'll probably lose her accommodation if she's lost her children and comes out and has no accommodation. She can't get her children back with her. So women are facing, particularly mothers, an utterly hopeless situation. It's very hard to get um, employment as well. I think that its moves to have more women punished in the community are going to be obviously a great thing for families and for children and are really important. People could never believe when I started working in style prison in Manchester, I couldn't really believe it either, but um, people couldn't believe it when I said, oh yeah, I've been working with women who are serving a few days. They were like, what do you mean a few days? Like, how is that even possible? But of course, the sentence Time on remand gets taken off, doesn't it? And your sentence gets cut in half. So that's a huge chunk that comes comes off your sentence that you'll serve actually in prison. But yeah, women who are serving a few days and you sort of think, okay, that is abject madness, actually. <laughs> if she's not dangerous enough to serve longer than a week, like that is just admin that nobody needs. And actually this isn't just about... Yes, it's about doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing and keeping women out of prison and men out of prison that, quite frankly, don't need to be there because there's plenty of nonviolent men that probably shouldn't be in prison either. But, you know, the fact of the matter is prison officers don't need it, the courts don't need it, the police don't need it, the taxpayer doesn't need it. If you're sending a woman to prison with not enough time to even um, work through a substance misuse, there's not even enough time to get her off her substances then it's totally pointless because what you're going to do is put her in a cell, give her medicine every day, whether that be methadone or whatever, then you're going to release her. She's not going to have that methadone on hand every day. So she's going to go back out and get street drugs and then it starts again. So definitely if there's not enough time to work through her substance misuse, it's definitely pointless. And were you asked in court about your children out of interest? No, I wasn't asked about them, but my daughter, who's now 23, was six, 15, 16 at the time, and she did write to the judge and almost pleaded with him. But no, it was never taken into account. I really struggle with mother and baby units. One, I think it's great that the baby 
gets to stay with mum. But I just feel the trauma when they're separated, 18 months in or two years in, must be horrendous for that mother and also for the the child. And my experience when that happens, so mum may have been in the mother and baby unit, the day that baby goes home, she's put straight into general population, which could be a really big, noisy wing. Yeah, that's the main part of the prison. Yeah, and then she's put into work. The next day, there's no time to think about this or worry about this. And I just worry about the mental health and the trauma and the emotion that that mum would go through at that point. And I also have seen the children who are also caged in a specific area of the prison who don't get to go and feed the ducks or go to the park. And I, I just wouldn't, I, I argue with, is it the right thing to do? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, obviously, again, I'll caveat everything I say by pointing out that I've been to mother and baby units, but I have never been on one in that sense. So initially, they struck me as being places where I was like, oh, that's nice. You know, staff aren't in uniform often, depending on which one you're in, I guess. Some of the ones I've seen have been done up really nicely. Women could get help with their breastfeeding. Babies would be taken out to get their inoculations, to be socialised to a certain extent, because there was something that I found really fascinating, yeah, about babies having to understand noise in supermarkets and traffic noises and things that you might not hear and they might not be exposed to in, in prison. And we have to ask, is this what we should be doing? We previously spoke to Dr Lucy Baldwin, now at Durham University, about this issue on the podcast. And I've known other mums who've had to make a really difficult decision because, like you said, there are only six MBUs. So mums sometimes have to make the choice between moving to an MBU, which might be many, many, many miles further away from home, which might mean that their other children who are too old to be on an MBU are left at home and then can't visit because mum is so far away with the new baby. So effectively, we're kind of asking mums to do a Sophie's choice of, well, do I choose to keep the baby with me and, and move to an MBU, which means I can't see my children, or do I choose to keep all my children together so that I can see them sometimes, but that means not having my baby with me in here. And you cannot imagine the agony of those decisions as a mother. It's it's absolutely horrible. It's horrible that we have women in those situations. I think you've mentioned, haven't you, before the sort of sometimes some of the attitudes of the staff members towards certain women, maybe of certain backgrounds. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I was a Samaritan listener um, in right through my sentence actually but when I got to open prison and there was a mother and baby unit there there was a lady that was clearly distressed and she was always in the main body of the prison and not really in the mother and baby unit and she asked if she could speak to me and she said that um, herself and her daughter were being really ostracized from the other women and her daughter wasn't able to play with the other children because the other mothers were saying that the baby had yellow skin and comments were being made and racist comments. And it resulted, she did put in a few complaints and what the end result was that she let her baby go home much earlier 
than she had to. One, because she couldn't stand the racial abuse. Two, she didn't want her daughter not to be able to play and join in. And I think that's heart. It was heartbreaking. She was under two, um, but she definitely went home at least three months before she should have. And then the mum come back into the main body of the prison straight away. And it was investigated eventually, and the prison did recognise it had happened, but it was too late at that point for her and for her daughter. I am not surprised because I witnessed lots of institutionalised racism, not just from officers, but also from women that were in prison. And as sad as it is to say, I wasn't shocked by that behaviour. And from your point of view, you know, when you were serving time, you will have met mums from all and women from all different backgrounds. And we know that sort of racism obviously exists and exists within prisons too. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about that and other things that you might have seen? I can just definitely talk about something that happened to me. So when I was able to go out to work, because I would be leaving early and coming back later, I would miss healthcare. So the officers would collect any medication and bring them to like a hub. So as long as I went to the hub with my ID, I would be able to collect my medication anytime because I was working. And I was handed the medication of an Asian lady. And I don't know what was in the packet, but I looked and said, oh, that's not mine. And the officer looked up and went, oh, you don't half look like her. Oh, wow. I didn't look anything like her, but we both have brown hair and brown face. Um, another time when we used to go for roll, so the officer was standing there shouting his surname and tick you off. And this officer shouted, um, Begum. And she said, oh, I'm not. And he went, oh, no, you're the other one. Very simple things that people would not even think you may be offended by. But as a black woman, I want you to see me as my own identity. So if you had a magic wand, so let's say we're, yeah, we're talking about maybe a heavily pregnant woman. She's up in the magistrate's court for a nonviolent crime. In an ideal world, if these things existed, what do you think would be the best route for her if she didn't have a safe home of her own to go back to? Well, definitely a place in Hope Street. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. And, and this is the thing, isn't it? If there isn't a safe place to go to, instead of building more spaces for women in prison, let's create more safe spaces. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because if we are allowed to use prison as a place of safety, it will be used. And of course, there has to be this standoff, doesn't there? Where someone at some point has to be brave enough, someone in power has to be brave enough to say, it's not happening anymore. And of course, that will be difficult because I think there'll be a transition point where actually, let's be honest, some women are safer in prison, aren't they? But they're safer from abusive partners that might be after them as opposed to, you know, anything else. And that's only because we're not creating safe spaces for them. I mean, I think even when I was in prison, I'm going back to 2016, you were talking about community-based building these centres and women would be able to go with the children. They'd be smaller and there'd be a lot more therapeutic approach. But we're now in 23. And other than Hope Street, I've not heard of anything like this. So people have been talking, haven't they, for a long time? Yeah, and I think the women's centres 
sort of movement um, was certainly a really good start off the back of um, the Causton report. And, you know, some of them are phenomenal, but I think the problem is some of them are residential, some of them aren't. To, to try and get the numbers that you need is really difficult. Obviously, the funding mechanisms in the third sector, you know, that's all really difficult. People are scrabbling around for less and less funds. Um, so that's difficult, isn't it? If you don't have a robust way of paying for these things, it's it's tricky. But I suppose at least there are some women's centres around doing their best against the odds, but it's certainly not enough, is it? No, and I think also I, when I was... Um in prison there was a lady that was pregnant she wasn't on my wing but I did hear the next day that she'd been screaming out in pain for hours and hours and the staff were saying oh you're not ready yet you've only just gone into labour and for the other women that was really upsetting for them to hear this lady screaming out and I think also we've had too many deaths in prison of when babies one death would be too many wouldn't it um I don't I cannot see any way of sending a pregnant woman to prison is any good for anybody? No, and it might just be worth revisiting, particularly um, the baby death in Bronzefield. And actually, that was um, exactly what we're talking about. Um, A young woman remanded into custody, so she hadn't yet been found not guilty or, um, or guilty. So she was just awaiting her trial. Um, She was a care leaver. She was really young, heavily pregnant. She pressed her bell however many times, didn't she? No one came and she ended up giving birth to her baby in the cell. The baby died and she wrapped the baby up in blankets and got into bed with it. And eventually an officer came in the next morning to find the blood and everything and found her in bed with her dead baby. And you sort of think, my God, you know, she then went on to be found not guilty. Um, So had Hope Street been available to her or an alternative to custody, she could have gone and she could have been looked after and that could have been avoided. And the trauma to that staff member who walked in to find what they did, you know, this isn't just traumatic for the woman and for the other women, is it? This is like traumatising young staff members and older staff members. I mean, it's just not okay. I think that was what I was going to come to with that. It's almost not fair on the staff members. They're not trained as maternity workers or nurses. They, they've got very strict rules to follow. They don't bend the rules because you're pregnant or change them. So it's not fair on anybody. I just can't see... If somebody hasn't committed a violent crime, what would be the point? I just can't think of one. So what reform, in your opinion, is needed in the visitor process for mothers? So when the children do turn up at the prison in order to see you or other mothers, how do you think that process could be better? Yeah, I think... For me personally, when I looked at the visitors hall, even sometimes I'd say, oh, I wouldn't want my children to come to this because you'd have all mums in the centre and all officers around the side and then a raised area where the SO, the the, uh, senior officer would sort of sit and watch every movement. I think it has to be done less, less clinical and whether that would be smaller groups of visits but more times in the week 
And I also think that there should be more use of childcare resettlement. One thing I didn't know, if a child was in your care before prison, you can access childcare resettlement after you've been in for three months. And this isn't publicised a lot to the prisoners because I guess it's a lot of work. But some of the women that were in the know were, as soon as they landed at prison, putting in the childcare resettlement paperwork. So I think we need more use of sending mums out to see the children for those visits. Yeah. So release on temporary licence. Yes, definitely. And um, release on temporary licence and childcare resettlement, I think you can have once a month. But if you trusted to go out once a month, why can't you go out once a week? Yeah. And also, I guess it's, you know, if you think about a child who's in school five days a week, they can't come in the week. No. And then how often would visits happen on a weekend? One session on a Saturday, one on a Sunday. For how long? I didn't really have visits, but I think they were two hours. However, it took that long to get everybody in. The two hours started, say, one o'clock, but people were still filtering in at 20 past one, half one. But they didn't get longer on that visit because the visit would finish at three o'clock. So you're not really getting the full time. And often you can't, you're not allowed to stand up, are you, and move no. around. So you're no. not allowed to go and play. No, or, or buy a drink. You, you have to send other members of the family to do all of that. But I think, again, instead of making these visits better, let's send mum home on a Saturday. Instead of sending children into prisons. Yeah. I remember we touched on this issue of visitor policies in our podcast episode with Dr Shona Minson. So I had a family in my research who lived on the edge of London and at that time Holloway prison was open and mum was in Holloway and in my mind I was thinking well that's not very far, that's quite good. But what they explained to me was visiting was from 10 to 12 or 2 to 3.30 I think. So the children had seen their mother once in four months and that was on an, some prisons run a thing called an extended visits day or a children's day where children can have a longer period of time with their mum. And those are fantastic and um, make all the difference to a child to actually have five or six hours where they can just play with their mum. Because usually at a prison visit, if you've managed to pass all the checks and the child will have been searched, a proper pat down search, so mm. they will have been touched in all kinds of places they're not used to a stranger touching them. They will have probably been sniffed by dogs as well and a lot of children find that very frightening and this is once they've gone through various bits of the prison which will have very tall fences and big clangy gates and it's quite it can be quite off-putting even as an adult but for a child it's frightening they go into the visits hall and their mum will be sitting somewhere and they will have to go and sit and in most places their chairs will be arranged opposite their mums I was in a prison recently and the visiting rules were stuck to the tables in between you're allowed one uh, closed mouth kiss at the beginning and end of a visit. And that's because of the risk of passing, passing drugs. drugs. Everyone's hands have to be visible at all times. So children can't just go and, for example, they can't sit in their mum's knee. Um, there might be a play area in the corner of the visits hall with all the attractive toys for children to play in, if, if it's a good visits hall. The children want to go and play there. Their mum can't leave her seat. They fall over when they're running around. She can't go and pick them up. So visits are really, really tricky for children because none of the normal 
way of relating to their mum applies. Little ones do not understand why they can't hug and kiss their mum. They don't understand why she can't pick them up. They don't understand why she can't walk around with them and go and see the toy they want her to see. It's really traumatic and... A lot of the children um, or those who were caring for them had made the decision, along with the child's mother, not to bring the children for visits. In your opinion, how should staff in the justice system work with women and mothers better? Do you think things are improving? No. I think also we need to have a lot more ratio of women officers. In women's prison, there's still more male. I would say 70% to 30%, maybe even more. We need to recruit women with trauma-informed education. We need to train officers differently when we're working with women. And we need more social workers in prison. I think for me, I I never had a female um, officer. They were all male. And it was just so hard to talk about sensitive things to a man. Yeah, and when you've suffered harm at the hands of a man, yeah, I guess, you know, maybe some people who haven't suffered like that find it difficult because, you know, I could even hear myself saying, well, there's some men that, you know, are really nice and I've met lots of lovely male officers who are very good at the trauma-informed working and stuff. But that's different, isn't it, to someone coming in who has suffered a lot of abuse at the hands of a man. It could be the loveliest man in the world. It's not their fault. but. No they still represent something quite frightening that needs to be worked on. I think as well for me, I remember once I'd been in prison maybe a year and to get post, you'd have to queue in the dinner queue, get your dinner and then get your post. But I didn't want dinner. I just wanted my post. So I just walked towards the post. The officer screamed my name so loud. I physically jumped. And I remember turning around and saying, what are you screaming like that for? Not realising... Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But it's their approach to women. I've seen men towering, shouting at women. And I've said, you know, you shouldn't do that to a woman. You don't know what she's been through. And I work in an industry where my role, when it's put out, it's for women only. Only women could do my role in my job for my company. And we need to look more at that in the women's estate. Yeah, the sort of more appropriate roles. Yeah. I'd be interested in your view on this because I think I'm of the belief that women need to, at the appropriate point for them, be around healthy, good men who can hopefully make them realise that not all men are going to harm them and that there's some really wonderful men out there who are emotionally intelligent and gentle and, you know, but but I guess it's at what stage that's right for that particular woman. Yeah, and the thing is that most of the men officers were not that. Right. And a lot of them were on the edge of being bullies, I would say. And then you got female officers that wanted to act like the male. So you had like this really aggressive female officer who I think was wanting to be more like a male counterpart. So I just think maybe when you're recruiting officers, there should be a different process. Yeah, and and I do know that there is a recruitment problem in the prison service anyway, struggling with the retention of staff they have, the recruitment of new staff, you know, that's all in a very bad way, isn't it? So it's it's not looking great on that front. Why do you think that Hope Street would be the best place for women who are in the criminal justice system? I mean, I think for me, it's um, 
again comes back to this point that fundamentally we need a community justice system that works. It's basically fallen off the edge of a cliff from what I can see. You know, I was around working in this space when the probation system was privatised. Everyone said, don't do it, it's a bad idea. The government did it. It was a very bad idea. So they then realised they had to renationalise it. So, you know, and the probation service, I think, is a misunderstood service, really, because it's sort of rather invisible. They don't have uniforms and they're sort of in the background and um, but doing a very, very important job. So they are really the community justice system, as it were, but they don't really have access to much residential, uh, you know, yes, there's approved premises where sort of offenders can go on license, but it's just misunderstood, I think. So for me, Hope Street was about coming up with a concept designed for women, by women, um, to take their children into account and to be able to give police, probation, magistrates confidence that there is somewhere where these nonviolent women can go who pose no risk to society whatsoever, where they can go if they're pregnant, where they can go with their dependent young children and make sure that if it is a tag they have and they're on curfew, that can be done. They can get access to the help that they need. Um, there's some element of childcare so that when they're doing the courses that they need to do or jumping through the hoops as set out by the court, that the child doesn't have to suddenly be taken into care because the mother can't cope. You know, we need to design things and set people up to succeed. Some will always fail, but we need to set things up so that people can succeed. And I, when I look at the system at the moment, I just see a system that is set up to make sure people fail and some of the most impressive people managed to get through that and managed to come out the other side, a bit like you, Lily, um, and you make the best of it and you get, your, you get your head together, you get everything together. But that is against the odds as opposed to being part of a system that is there to really try and help people on their way. So for me, it's really about creating a model that sits over a county that can also be replicable and scalable so that... Yeah. If in a few years' time we go, oh, Hope Street is working quite well, and look, there is data that we're measuring. We can look at the outcomes for the women, for the children. We can look at the data from the police, probation, and courts. Are we actually helping those services and taking the pressure off those services? Well, if so, great. And, okay, let's look at putting a Hope Street in another county, in another county. Because by doing that, you're stemming the flow of nonviolent women going into prison where they should not go in the first place, you then start reducing the female prison population and then you can start closing women's prisons. And on a macro scale, that's what the vision behind Hope Street is, to try and drive that number down of the women who shouldn't be there, who pose no risk to society. Yeah. And I think by doing that, we keep children out of care. And we know that statistically, children in care are more likely to offend as well. So hopefully that knock-on effect would stop that happening as well, you know, and less children being separated from their mum. Exactly. It was fascinating chatting to Lily and learning more about some of the experiences of motherhood in the justice system. In this upcoming series of Justice, we'll be delving deeper into the issues discussed in this episode and speaking to expert guests each week 
to further shed light on the challenges mothers face in the justice system and what we could be doing differently. We hope you'll join this exploration with us. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Also, rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.